Welcome back to another amazing episode of Stargazer. Today, I have one of my favorite guests returning, Ronnie Pontiac. You may have caught his episode about his amazing book, Metaphysical American Religion, American Metaphysical Religion, my apologies. Um, and I'm so happy to have Ronnie back. Um, I also interviewed Ronnie's wife, Tamara Lucid, about her amazing book, Making the Ordinary Extraordinary. So if you have not caught those two episodes, you might want to tune in. But today I have invited Ronnie to come back to the show to talk about his latest book, which happens to be on a subject that I'm extremely passionate about, that is very near and dear to my heart. And this is The Magic of the Orphic Hymns. New Translations for the Modern Mystic. So thank you for being here, Ronnie. Oh, thank you so much for having me here. Oh, my goodness. I am. Well, when I first interviewed Tamara, your wife, uh, back in February of 21, I believe it was, she told me that you were working on this book together. And I was thrilled to hear that because the Orphic hymns and the Orphic mysteries and the mythology of Orpheus is something that I absolutely love. And it's been woven into so many eras of my life in different ways. So this book was thrilling for me and it was actually beautiful and it helped me to to discern a lot of things that I had never quite seen, discerned before, to understand things in a way that I had never understood before. And that will come through as we discuss. But I just wanted to start by asking you, um, what was sort of the origin story of this book, uh, which includes, by the way, your own translations of some of the Orphic hymns? So what called you to do those translations and what called you to write this book? Um, well, it depends on how far back you want to go. Uh, I would say that you can see that, that when, we, when Tamara and I look at it, and we, we both kind of grew up in cultural wastelands where there was just nothing going on, had anything to do with Greek mythology, let alone the hymns of Orpheus. Mm -hmm. But in her youth, she stumbled across a book about Greek myths when she was a little girl mm -hmm. and became just obsessed with them. And, and she felt like coming home to her and she cherished that book. For me, I saw a very... Um, the first Star Trek um, during a repeat on television when I was also about, you know, eight or nine years old. Mm -hmm. And it was the episode about Apollo mm -hmm. and Apollo trying to sort of convince Kirk and the crew to be his little children on this planet so that they could uh, be happy in a paradise where uh, they could worship Apollo. And it's very sad because, of course, they use technology to overcome him <laughs> and they think he's uh, a fraud. But it turns out that he really was Apollo and, and he gives up and he calls out to Athena and to Zeus to take him, that they were right, that human beings don't need the gods anymore. Oh. Broke my heart as a little kid. And I grew up in an atheist family. And I, I, I mean, it was like some of the first religion I ever saw that moved me. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really know anything about it. Just that, that the speech that Apollo gave about all that the gods gave to humanity. And so I started looking into Greek myths at the school library. And then uh, when Tamara and I got together, uh, part of the reason that, that we, we synced up the way we did was because I knew things about Greek history. And so I would tell her these stories. I, I was this rocker dude who 
who knew all this obscure stuff just based on my own reading. And she thought that was wonderfully romantic. And, and she was fascinated with the same things. When we worked for Manley Hall, the last project I did with him during the process of him trying to get us out of there um, was the hymns of Orpheus. He did a republication of the Thomas Taylor translation, the second edition with his PRS press. And I did just minor things, helped with the, the blurb on the cover and design things and such. And I became fascinated with the book because of course, in doing this, I was reading it. And Thomas Taylor was talking about its magical power. Thomas Taylor's translation is very difficult, very kind of clunky and wordy and, and uh, with a lot of phrases that have to be explained. And, and yet their history of these Taylor translations of the hymns was so powerful. He had inspired William Blake. He had inspired Shelley, most of the great uh, English romantic poets. He inspired Emerson and Thoreau and, and the other New England transcendentalists, Bronson Alcott. Um, his translations inspired a whole platonic movement in the United States long after he was dead. So that was, it was very impressive. And since we were leaving the, this little paradise we had stumbled into with Manley Hall and the Philosophical Research Society, and we were heading out into the world of music, we thought that we would commemorate both events with the hymns of Orpheus, that, that we would take those old Taylor translations and, and reinvent them into simpler English. And then as we did that, we realized that the original uh, hymns, which I, I had been studying uh, a, enough Greek, ancient Greek in college, uh, it was very serendipitous actually, because I had to study a language and there was a teacher that happened to be there at the time teaching ancient Greek and no one wanted the class but me. And so I was able to have the class in her backyard and her house. And she would like um, smoke weed with me <laughs> and teach me like all this amazing stuff about the Greek language and reading it and interpreting it. And uh, it gave me enough skills to be able to go into the original hymns and to look at them in Greek and, and see what, what was really going on there. And what I found was kind of formulaic and dull because of course, the priests knew most of the correspondences that would be used in the rituals. And so they didn't have to specify too much. They would use a couple uh, phrases or, or familiar epithets of the gods in order to attract their attention, but they weren't giving us the benefit of all their knowledge in these hymns. So Tamara, who had been acquiring all this information about the cults of these gods and about what things were sacred to them and how they were worshipped and and what sorts of herbs and astrological correspondences were involved so she brought all that and i brought my my knowledge my very minuscule knowledge of ancient greek and the little scott greek lexicon and the greek grammar and together we sat down and we dismantled these things and put them back together into these very simple uh hymns not the ones that that, that are here that in this book and and then we decided that we would perform them. And so we took on some of the, the prohibitions of orphism. We didn't eat meat. We didn't eat beans. We stopped doing any kind of intoxicants. We wanted to be as pure as we could swing uh, in our world. And 
And then we were just going to, we were in a third story apartment in the middle of Hollywood and, and we would just kind of crouch uh, or rather kneel at the window. There's this one window that looked out over another apartment building and there was like a tree, <clears throat> excuse me. And you could see a little bit of the city in the distance. And we softly sang them and one a day and tried to meet the correspondences by day and to bring in other elements that would be associated, the incenses and such. Mm -hmm. And the results were, were really uh, shocking for us because there was so much serendipity around it. We really intended it as a more of an artistic thing. So we were saying goodbye to Manly Hall and to PRS by doing this in honor of him and of them. But we were also saying hello to the world of music that we were entering by by using this sacred uh, music, the sacred texts of songs to to start our journey with. And instead it turned into this magical experience that that really left us with a lot to think about. Mm. Wow. Oh, that's amazing. You guys are kindred spirits. I resonated with so many elements of both of those backgrounds in terms of introduction to Orpheus, um, especially the fascination with Greek mythology and childhood. Um, I had my Edith Hamilton, like torn apart, cover to cover, starting around. I think I started, I got my Edith Hamilton when I was nine or 10. Um, and it led me to become so fascinated with the ancient world. You know, when I was in sixth grade, I wrote a research paper on the seven wonders of the ancient world. And I was just obsessed with trying to tap into that current and tap into that consciousness, having no idea that one day I would actually incorporate it into spiritual practice. I mean, I truly had no clue that it was anything more than stories. But, you know, when you're a child, mythology is so powerful. I mean, it's powerful as an adult too, but what I mean is that it's so immersive and it's so powerful. You don't need to have any critical understanding of what it's doing. It's just that transformative. And so at some level, some deeper wisdom, some soul, soulful wisdom within me knew that these myths were true. Um, but at the same time, I was completely unconscious of where that was going to lead me. So that was my original introduction to the myth of Orpheus anyway, was just Edith Hamilton, her more very much like your translations, just more accessible, more modern, although I think it was published in the mid-century, but nevertheless, more accessible, more distilled English mm -hmm. and um that's what I really appreciated about the translations that you provided. I, cause I actually love the Thomas Taylor. Mm -hmm. That's just because I love English literature. I love the romantic era. Mm -hmm. And as much as I love that era and uh, have spent a tremendous amount of my life absorbed in it, I did not know that Thomas Taylor was Mary Wollstonecraft's landlord until I read Tamara's book. So I was just like clued into a missing piece of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, in your book, you also talk about the influence that Thomas Taylor's work had on all of these giants from the Romantic era, from William Blake to Percy Shelley. And I really did not quite realize how important his work was to that that current, mm -hmm. that reawakening of, mm -hmm. you know, the the Dionysian or whatever you want to call it. So. I um 
love Thomas Taylor's translations, even though, yes, they're very, they are clunky. <laughs> I love him too. I, I love, I love his translations and I love him. Yeah. <laughs> He's such an amazing person. Amazing. And yeah, yeah it's, it's ornamental language for sure. It's, it's a completely different consciousness that they were coming from. But my point is that I actually love your translations as well, because they are distilled. That's my impression of them. They're so distilled and they are done with tremendous respect and love and they're clear, um, but they don't lack the poetic essence. They're not too dry, mm -hmm. nor did I feel like you were trying to shoehorn in, you know, your like your time and place too much. I felt like they were still rather timeless. So that's just my feedback on the quality of the translations. <laughs> yeah. I we really spent, we spent a long time on it, you know, because from when we did that until these books came out, there was so much new research that came out. There was a huge revolution in Orphic studies, just like there was in American metaphysical religion. Uh, well, American metaphysical religion kind of became a field of study yeah. in the last 20 years. Orphic studies, of course, existed for centuries, but but the new research is so dramatic, so brilliant, and so much new information yeah. that we we were absorbing all of this and more information about the cults of the gods and, and the details of that. And yes, we definitely wanted to distill it into something that could be read as poetry or it could be sung and it would it would suit melody. And Tamara, with her ability as a lyricist and you know, all her experience with putting uh, improvised words to music, has such a great sense of, of rhythm and clarity. Uh -huh. And so we really wanted to make sure that that was in there too. And yeah. we wanted them to function on all levels, that it could just be enjoyed as a book of Greek poems, if you will, um, our interpretations of them. I hate to call it a translation, even though it it really is, but we took so many liberties. I mean, we always laugh and say we're blasphemers <laughs> because we changed them significantly. And we even added new ones here and there, like the hymn to number that was missing because we wanted to create something that, well, actually a better way to describe it is this. The scholars can't do that. Mm -hmm. The people who have the knowledge can't just go and, and remake this stuff in an artistic effort. They, they, there's academic hell to pay. We were in this privileged position where we had the help of ac academics, mm -hmm. but yet we have no, no one has anything on us. So we don't have to be sure to conform to anything. So seeing that we have this rare opportunity to make a statement in a hopefully reverent way that would help people understand how relevant these hymns are, because it isn't simply that, that they were, they have a history of being described as the most powerful magic. Yeah. And this is something that Ficino said about them when he first translated them. And really, they were the beginning of the Renaissance. I mean, his hymn to the cosmos that he did in frustration because he didn't have the resources to translate the newly discovered manuscripts of Plato and Aristotle and such, and ostensibly Orpheus, uh, he did a hymn to cosmos uh, begging for some kind of support and almost immediately received a message from Cosimo de Medici that he was being given a house and a farm for support so that he could devote the rest of his life to these translations. And Cosimo told him to bring his lyre immediately to this house where he was waiting for him and to teach him about Plato and to sing these sacred songs to him. And that was the beginning of the Platonic Academy of Florence. 
which was, I mean, everybody was involved there. I usually tell the story of how uh, Poliziano in his journal, he's a, a composer of the period, he wrote that um, that he would go and listen to Ficino along with their other friends like Pico della Mirandola and many others. And, and he had this um, lyre that was uh, had a picture of Orpheus painted on it. And he would sing the Orphic hymns to his friends. And Poliziano says, I got so inspired, so worked up that I went home and I composed all night long. Mm -hmm. And he wound up doing an opera called Orphe. And the person who made the sets for that was Leonardo da Vinci. Mm -hmm. So we see that, that Orpheus and Ficino were at the center of the, the Renaissance. And, and so here's a man who says, this is the most powerful magic because the most powerful magic is love and the hymns are love. They, they taught me about love, he says. Mm -hmm. And and that was a big deal for Tamara and I because we, we had to sit and go, now, what does he mean by that exactly? Mm -hmm. And and then, of course, we have Agrippa who also described them as, as the most powerful magic. And and so having heard that, you you wonder what is their purpose? Is this magic in the sense of I want a new car or back in the day, I, you know, like Ficino, Hey, I want a house too. Yeah. Um, I'm going to do a hymn. I don't think so. Um, to me, these hymns and, and to Tamara, these hymns are about looking at every facet of human life and revealing there the wisdom and the love and the mercy of the gods that every part of human life, even the most difficult like death, are essential and they are filled with divine wisdom. Mm -hmm. And when we can see the world through that lens, when we are lifted to that noetic vision, we can see the love that is, is all through the world. And this reminds me of something that, that Manley Hall would talk about. And, and you know, he dedicated his big book, The Secret Teachings of All Ages, to the rational soul of the world. And that was a revolution for me when I first encountered that, because it was like, whoa, what is he? The rational soul of the world. That means that my experience of the world is not experience of a chaos, a predatory chaos that will crush me as soon as it can. I'm collaborating with a rationally ensouled world that is trying to teach me things mm -hmm. and, and to, to help me to help it in the work that it's doing in service of the gods. Or in the way that uh, Pico della Mirandola put it, he said, these gods that are being addressed in the Orphic hymns are not demons or, or you know, primitive spirits. These are powerful forces, uh, you know, spirits of nature that God has placed in the world to help human beings. If we can have the wisdom to, to ask for that help. So, it's yeah. a different kind of magic. It's attuning the soul to the higher divine wisdom. So it isn't that that Ficino wanted the the house so he could translate and he got it because he did a magical hymn. The gods wanted him to have the house. The gods wanted him to translate. And so when our when we're in alignment with the will of the gods, things can manifest for us in dramatic ways. And, and the hymns can therefore, I think, have that kind of effect. And I'm not sure, I mean, I haven't never tried them and I don't really know anyone who tried them just to manifest things. Maybe they do work. And I always tell people, let me know if, you, if, they, if they work for you or if you have an interesting experience because Tamara and I are collecting 
reactions to them and what kinds of things happen when you do them because people commonly do have these serendipitous experiences uh just to describe a couple for your listeners that we had when we did the hymns that first time for example when we did the hymn for athena we had a great horned owl show up and we're talking about the middle of hollywood uh, in, the, in the early 90s, I mean, this was not a place where owls were hanging. And it was in the daytime. <laughs> they don't come out during the day. And so here we are doing the, the hymn for Athena and an owl lands on the nearest telephone pole right by us. Mm. We, do the, we do the hymn. We finish. The owl jumps off the pole and swoops down straight at the window at us and then up and over the building. So we, we, we thought, okay, that, that was pretty intense. And then we had a series of these kinds of experiences, some of them very simple, such as the, uh, we had a wonderful one, I thought, where uh, we were doing a hymn to Hermes, and the, all this wind suddenly came out of nowhere and rattled all the shutters and made it sound like laughter. Mm -hmm. It was like a typical Hermes trick, where we had the hymn to Aphrodite, and we saw two people while we were softly singing. They were walking underneath us hand in hand. And they stopped right under us. No way they could have heard us. We're whispering three stories up. They stopped right under us and they kissed during the hymn to Aphrodite. Mm -hmm. So those kind of serendipitous things can happen with these hymns. They, they seem to really have uh, a power in that way. Yes, they do. Um, just a few reflections on all of that. Mm. I, I, felt, I felt like... You know, I I liked astrology a lot. I always had an enthusiasm for it, or not always, but that's a long story. But anyways, I I had an interest in astrology when I was very young, and then I became like a materialist for a little while and rejected it. Then I got interested in it again, but it lacked a certain strength. It lacked a certain spark. It lacked something that I really needed it to have until. I discovered the Orphic hymns and that's another story how I did. And we'll probably talk about that. But when I started combining the knowledge that I had of astrology with the hymns, it completely transformed everything. And I became obsessed with Marsilio Ficino. I read all of his letters. Um, I loved that Thomas More book, the planets within completely changed the way that I was addressing my own illnesses because prior to that i had i had been diagnosed with depression and all of these things you know typical american story and i'm not saying i'm special it's just how it is and mm -hmm. i had been sort of identifying with all these different neuroses um but ficino and his perspective on how to harmonize and heal with these planetary energies using the hymns completely changed my life and i did it all autodidactically independently how cool that's wonderful and so, yeah, and, and because I've always been a writer as well, and my husband and I are both, we we fell in love when we were very young, just like you and Tamara. Um, I met him when I was 18. We started dating when I was 19, um, and we've been together ever since. So the reality was that we came together because of our shared interest in a lot of things, most especially art and history and the fact that we were both writers, and he wrote poetry, and so did I. And his poetry was actually good, which was a rare thing to find back then. So That's true. when I found like this young man with an actual gift for poetry, I was sort of 
beyond enchanted. And I realized that this is important to me. This is what I value um, more than any other things that you're supposed to value in the world. And so I sort of chose Andre because I saw that as deeply valuable. And it's more than just he's going to write poems and read them to me. It's the spirit that's there and the way he sees things and the way he feels things. And so when we got into the Orphic hymns, we absolutely used them in their traditional translations. The Thomas Taylors love them. Mm-hmm. But of course, because we're writers, we were also inspired to write our own. Cool. And so these are the stories that I have about manifestation with the hymns. So mm-hmm. the first one that's very significant, um, and I tell this to like my readers all the time, because I was in school for a very long time and my plan was to become a teacher. So I got a teaching credential to teach high school. And once I was done with my credential, it was very difficult to find a full-time teaching job. I was going to teach English literature, no surprise. Um, And there were a lot of issues with the public school going on at that time. Not only were jobs scarce, but that's when Common Core came in, which had basically obliterated the essence of literature meaning that they wanted to discard as much poetry and storytelling and novel writing as possible in favor of reading technical manuals and information like just newspaper articles, which is a travesty. And that's another topic. But Mm -hmm. um, so I went back to school after that to get a master's degree so I could become a professor. So this is my big idea. This is the only career path that made any sense to me. I just, I'm going to teach. By the time I graduated with my master's degree, I was so hollowed out and so depressed, deeply, deeply depressed, disturbed existential crisis, because I realized that this is not going to work. This is not going to work for very long. Anyway, this is not going to lead to any happiness, nor is it that secure of a job financially. It was just endless problems. And so by that, summer after i went through a deep dark depression i decided that what i was going to do was start writing astrology and start publishing it online and just see if i could start like a side business doing something that i loved while i was building my teaching career so this was just something i had to do to balance out the pain i was in I'm like yeah. well, if i'm gonna work for the state and i'm gonna work in this capacity, doing things that I don't necessarily love, I have to build something that I do love. So in order to initiate that, Andre and I rewrote, we did not translate, we don't know Greek, but we rewrote an Orphic hymn to Mercury because mm-hmm. Mercury was in Virgo at that time. That happens to be at the top of my chart. Right. House. I am a Virgo and my Mercury is in Virgo. So I was like, if this is not Perfect. a time to just launch a spell but the spell was rewriting this hymn and then basically just having a small petition where I asked to be able to do what I love for a living which is writing astrology and teaching things that matter to me and being able to do that work from anywhere in the world working for myself working from home the dream very mercurial request as well and so with that hymn we did it on the beach in Malibu at night and the moment that it was over we hit the road and we started having endless mercurial synchronicities including the license plate in front of us being eight 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 three eights 
Um, we went to the grocery store and the total on our receipt was eight eighty eight. <laughs> there, you know, it was just like very strange things. And there was um orange cars everywhere, orange being a correspondent color to Mercury that mm-hmm. night. So the following morning, I started my website and I started writing astrology and in less than five months, I think it was about five months, that was in August. So by the following February, I was able to quit my part-time job working at a nonprofit, writing grants, getting paid nothing to go full-time to work for myself, which was, a, it felt risky and everything, but also things were flowing, things were moving. So that spell worked. It was so powerful. It was so beautiful. And of course, it was astrological magic in that Ficino sense. It was natural magic correspondent to the right kind of transit. But the real, maybe it is blasphemous, but I like that you have an artistic rendition of the hymns because that's what we did. And it, it was done with sincerity. It was done with also like acknowledging some of the formula. Like it was not just a freestyle. It was actually like, let's do our own rendition of the yeah. formulas that we can recognize. So that worked and it worked so beautifully that I am still swimming in the blessings that unfold. That's so cool. Well, you know, Agrippa said he, he recommended that we can write our own hymns. Exactly. He just, said, he just said, but before you do it, if you really want to know how to do it, check out the hymns of Orpheus. Yeah, exactly. Which is what I did. I followed <laughs> exactly that 100%, you know, and yeah. I followed the the exact formula. Uh, you hail the planet, you praise the planet, you know, and I liked that you included that in this book as well. You condemn the things that they're against. You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I love it so much. So yeah, we did that. And then, um, then again, when we got married, so Andre and I had been together forever, um, but, you know, we never had any money and we come from broken homes. And so the whole idea of getting married was kind of a disaster. It's just chaos. There's nobody that's going to help us get married. Um, even if we did want to get married, who's going to marry us? We're not, we don't have a church that we attend. Right. We can't really get everyone in the family on both sides together because there's so much. Right. I get it. Yeah. So we're yeah. like, we want to get married just for ourselves, but how? So again, we wrote a, a hymn to Aphrodite and nice. we did that. We started, we did this many times. Um, but the first time we did it, it was just like, how do we get married? Please help. Like, mm-hmm. You know how much we love each other. So Aphrodite, please help us to bring our, our union together in this official way. And so that night, we went over to our friend, our friend's house. So he's, he's much older. He's in his seventies and he's an old fashioned gay, one of the OGs that left his Christian family to go to San Francisco. And he's just one of our dearest friends. He always has his home open to us. He always has us over for dinner. He treats us like his children. And so that night we went over there for dinner and we told him, he was the first person that we told, like, we're getting married. And he's like, oh, where, when, how can I be there? And then we told him the truth. Like, we have no idea. Yeah. So he said, oh, let me let me take care of that. You're going to get married in Santa Barbara, outdoors, in a park. I know the very place. And you can stay because he's an interior designer. And he's like, I just worked on um, a wing 
in a beautiful home that is going to be like used as an Airbnb. Some of my clients just have half their house dedicated to an Airbnb. I just redid it. I'll call them right now. He called them right then and there and asked them if we could have the place for our honeymoon for two or three nights. Mind you, this is also for the the summer solstice. We got married on June 24th, which Mm -hmm. is a very busy time in Santa Barbara. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he calls them and they say yes, because that's how much they love him and respect him and appreciated the work that he did. And it was a gift. So that night we had a place to get married, a beautiful place. And then we had this honeymoon suite that was designed by our friend, somebody. That's so cool. Yeah. So, um, and then, yeah, we found, you know, then we decided that we would get married by uh, Andre's Kung Fu teacher, our Qigong teacher, mm-hmm. uh, who was a Taoist priest. And he was totally down to marry us outside in the park. He was totally down. So that's how we got married. And it all started when we did that hymn to Aphrodite. So just put those stories in your collection because it's real. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing, you know? isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 100%. So I, that's why I was just so thrilled to hear that you were writing this book. And um, I want to dive into some of the the interpretations. So I found the chapter on um, the backward glance to be really stimulating and very exciting. So I was wondering if you could sort of just share with the listeners in case they're not familiar, just if you could just reiterate the classic Ovid Orpheus underworld myth. And then if we could actually talk about some of the backward backwards glance stuff, because I have um, questions and I also have sure. some ideas. So yeah, just what is this famous foundational Orpheus myth in your words? Okay. Um, to simplify it, because of course there are various versions. Yes. It is the story of uh, when Orpheus fell in love with Eurydice and they were supposed to get married and a beekeeper or shepherd with the strange name for the part he plays in the story, most excellent Aristeus sees Eurydice on her wedding day and he's overcome with lust. She's just too much for him. So he attacks her and she flees. As she's running, she falls into, they often say, a nest of vipers where she's bitten and she dies. In some versions, she's running with Orpheus hand in hand, and then her hand lets go when she's bitten, and he turns to see her fallen among the serpents. And so she, having died, Orpheus's heart now broken, he unleashes his grief in the most beautiful songs ever written, ever sung. He just laments her loss and he laments loss in the world and the world stops. Everything weeps. The stones weep. The trees weep. The birds are weeping. Even the gods are weeping because they're reminded of loss and transience and the tragedy of human life and its shortness. And finally, the gods take action because the world has to go on. Life has to continue. And they say to Orpheus, why don't you take those songs into the underworld? and sing to Hades, and maybe he will allow you to bring Eurydice back into the world, the way that Dionysus was able to go into the underworld and bring back his mother, Semele. So he does. His song immediately lulls the three-headed dog that protects Hades into a sleep. 
he walks surrounded by ghosts who gather millions of ghosts gathered to listen to his songs. Even Sisyphus stops rolling the, the boulder up the hill and the vulture stops gnawing on the liver of Prometheus and everything stops in Hades. He approaches Persephone and Hades, an awkward moment since Persephone was abducted and raped by Hades as the beginning of their marriage. And his song is so moving that, that they agree to release her. But Hades demands one provision, which is that he must trust Hades and he must not look back. If he looks back before Eurydice has reached the daylight of the living world, she will be returned to the world of the dead and she will never be able to come back again. Mm-hmm. So Orpheus walks along the path back to the real world, as we call it, and he can hear footsteps behind him and he knows that she's there. He goes out into the sunlight and he keeps walking and he's just, he wants to turn and to know that she's there, but he, he resists the temptation. He keeps walking, but then he just can't stand it. And he turns and gives a backward glance, feeling by now she must be in the sunlight, but Mm -hmm. she isn't. Mm -hmm. She's just right there at the threshold. He sees her for that moment, and then she's gone. And this is what begins the career of Orpheus as the singer of sacred songs, because he, after that, lamented this loss again, but in a more quiet way, on a hilltop in Thrace speaking to Apollo every morning when the sun rose, Apollo being the, uh, the soul, if you like, of the sun. And so Apollo, uh, moved by him, taught him, they say, all of his mysteries and wisdom. And then he went around the ancient Mediterranean world, establishing mystery schools. Mm-hmm. So the backward glance was said to be that moment when really his destiny was, was born because he couldn't have been Orpheus on the Argo, Orpheus, the master of the mysteries torn apart by the main ads, if he had been married and had children and had a happy life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, beautifully said. Thank you. <laughs> um, I never get tired of hearing these myths retold. And I appreciate the um, the detail that you recall, though. I, I remember Tamar telling me that you have a photographic memory, right? Yeah, so pretty that- near. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a a very orphic synchronicity that you're a musician and you have this tremendous memory. It's very fitting that you have spent so much time swimming in this current and have made this offering so that other people can. But the chapter that you included in the book, which I had never really seen a lot of meditations on this outside of maybe some, you know, like 20th century psychological analysis of mm-hmm. what it means. Um, what are some ideas about what that backward glance, that that moment where his destiny is made? What are the interpretations? And also, what is your interpretation? You don't have to have just one, but yeah. what do you think about what it means? Well, there's this is a very interesting subject because we have, for example, the very strong possibility that a lot of this originates with ancient Egyptian ideas. Mm-hmm. When you compare the funerary texts and the pyramids to the Orphic teachings, it's it's strikingly similar. And the birth of the Orphic movement, if you will, in Greece seems to coincide with the time 
when there was a similar, there had just been a similar renaissance in Egypt where the idea of immortality was extended to individuals, not just to the Pharaoh. Yes. And so there was this personal mystic religion that had been born in Egypt. And you know, the Romans called Egypt the temple of the world because it had such influence on, on other nations and their religious beliefs. But during a war, I believe against the Hittites, but I'm not sure, the, the Egyptians hired Greeks to do their fighting, Greek mercenaries. Mm -hmm. And so the idea seems to be that a lot of these ideas were um, probably brought by philosophers who went to Egypt with the soldiers. The soldiers began to adopt some of the funerary rites. So we actually have, for example, an archeological discovery of a grave of a Greek mercenary where the funeral apparatus conforms to the Egyptian tradition which is something that academics doubted would happen, but it, but it clearly did. So in the Egyptian version of these kinds of myths, it, it seems that really it's not so much that Orpheus went down to the underworld to get his wife back. Uh, the feeling among academics today is that that's kind of a Greek romanticization of it, mm -hmm. that, that the real story is that Orpheus or any teacher, a, a priest of the rites who's pure and understands the way of the gods is here to bring the dead out of the underworld. That's you and me running around in our materialistic days, worrying about paying the bills and completely having no idea what we are or why the cosmos is here or why we're here until we're awakened. And the awakeners, the saviors, as they were often called, uh, were people like Orpheus. So, so Orpheus's job was to go into the underworld and awaken the dead with his songs and bring them back to life. That may be the origin of it. We're not sure. There's also some very similar Hittite stuff and some very similar Persian stuff. There was clearly a strong Babylonian Persian influence on Pythagoras. And many academics believe Pythagoras invented a lot of this Orphic literature and may even have written some of it. And some have said that he wrote the songs themselves. Mm. Um, so now let's jump back from there. That's just one. And even in early Greek versions, there are versions where Eurydice is called Agriope, the wild-eyed. And Eurydice's name, you know, really, uh, Oiredike, you know, she's wide-ranging justice. That's Persephone as the judge of the dead, very likely. Yeah. So there is a definitely some kind of connection between Persephone and Eurydice. And then in the tale of Agriope, she goes to the underworld and saves Orpheus in this very early version where the, the feminine goddess power is the saving energy. But in the one that became the classic version that we know, and as far as why it became the classic version, I would suggest that maybe there's no myth that so powerfully captures um, loss in, in human life, mm -hmm. the, the, the random way it can happen, the suddenness of it, the, the way that grief stops life, the, the descent into the underworld that everyone who is bereaved makes, seeking some kind of contact or reassurance with the loved one, that there is an afterlife. And even hardcore materialists often wind up when they go through these kind of losses, uh, finding themselves believing in such. So there was a poet, unfortunately, I don't remember uh, her name right now, but who wrote about how she is a, a uh, strictly atheist and doesn't believe in reincarnation except for her cat. Mm. She believes in gods and reincarnation when it comes to her cat. 
Mm-hmm. And, and so this kind of, of human predicament where we are eternal souls and mortal souls who expect what we love to be with us always and to have access to it always, but we're living in a dimension where everything is pulled together and then falls back into the sand and everything is transient. And if we don't have spiritually awakened inner lives, then we have so little to fall back on when that happens. And, and it can make people bitter, destructive, angry, uh, make them surrender to lifelong depression sometimes because they don't have that spiritual side. Now, there are very direct ways that we approach that today, like spiritualism, right? You know, now it's you don't have to uh, to go to the underworld and convince Hades to let your wife go. It's mm-hmm. now what you do is uh, what Stuart Edward White and Betty White did, and you you have your wife come through a medium and give you so many details about your life together that it's got to be her because nobody else could know these things. Right. But back then even though there were mantic and prophetic activities going on and there was communication with the dead on some level being discussed, um, this idea of romantic love and, and the loss that, that occurs in human life, I think struck such a chord with artists, musicians, creative people, philosophers. And remember Plato says that philosophy should be considered uh, as something similar to dancing and and to making music. It's an erotic art. Mm-hmm. Um, it's supposed to awaken our love of life and our passion for life. And even though we're learning to die and we're learning to not get overwhelmed by the, the so-called reality of the details of day-to-day existence, we still feel this, this amazing uh, love when we awaken our spirituality for all that is with us. Uh, in this world. So I think that's part of the reason it's so popular. Now, as to what it meant, that has changed so much over the years. It's fascinating. Um, Eurydice starts out without even a name in in some of the early versions. I mean, we don't know anything about her, where she came from, who she was, what her background story was. She has no lines in in the movie. Um, She's literally an absence, a name and an absence. And, and some writers have said how very appropriate that is, because that was, in a sense, her destiny to play in, in the story of Orpheus. And as we go a little bit further along, and we, you mentioned Ovid, and, and he's, I love the way that he and Virgil, they kind of rewrote it. And Virgil's version of Eurydice is like a Roman wife. And he, she has lines. She actually says to Orpheus when he turns around and looks at her, something that in our vernacular would be like, you idiot, <laughs> now you ruined everything. What's wrong with you, mm-hmm. right? The very Roman. And, and then, then as men kind of started to theorize about all this and opera got involved. And, you know, at first opera, there's, there's been so many operas about Orpheus. I mean, uncountable. Um, and in the beginning, they all ended with that tragic ending. And then finally, Gleck came along and he said, oh, I hate this ending. And he made a happy ending where Orpheus surprised everybody and saved Eurydice. And it caused basically a riot at the performance. Everybody loved it. And, and from then on, it was always the happy endings for a while. Um, but writers began to say, well, she should be happy because 
she is the one who awakened love in Orpheus and only because of his grief and his loss of her does he become the great teacher at the very heart of the Western esoteric system. So yay for Eurydice for dying so conveniently and inspiring Orpheus to be who he is. Then as they went a little bit further along, they, they were kind of saying, well, you know, she really wasn't right for him. I mean, he wasn't right for marriage. The whole idea that he could be in love and have a wife was hubris. Uh, that wasn't who he was meant to be. So she was actually kind of a distraction and a danger to him because she could have distracted him from his destiny. And you can see here this pattern of reducing Eurydice, blaming Eurydice, very typical, of, unfortunately, of gender issues in Western literature uh, for generations. And, and then it's really not until, I think, H.D., um, a writer, of a, a woman who was uh, deeply steeped in, in esotericism, and who wrote a poem about Orpheus and Eurydice that was about her narcissistic husband. And this was one of the first times that somebody really gave Eurydice a voice and, and her perspective and wasn't just glorifying Orpheus. In, in this case, we have a somewhat narcissistic Orpheus. And, and she says in the poem something to the effect of, you don't love me. You're in love with you being in love. Mm -hmm. it, it that's what frees you to do all of your your poetry and all your stuff but you don't care about me i'm just a prop mm -hmm. a really astute observation about that myth in a way yeah. but then in the 20th century it really took off and women writers not only women there's some male writers who said some fascinating things too um but mostly women poets came in and they completely reinvented eurydice so we wind up with, for instance, uh, I think her name is Caroline Duffy's wonderful poem, really great poem uh, called Orpheus and Eurydice that has Eurydice, I think that's what it's called, has Eurydice saying, um, well, here I am in the underworld and it's great. I don't have to be around Orpheus. God, that guy was a pain. And then all of a sudden there's a knock on the door to the underworld and who do you think it is? The big O himself. And her line is with a poem to pitch and me for the prize. So Orpheus comes walking in and he's, he's just showing off. He's having the time of his life, you know, wowing everybody to get her back. And she doesn't want to go. And so as she is following him, because Hades has commanded her to go back to the living, she starts thinking, how can I get out of this? There's got to be a way. And she finally gets the idea. I've got it. I'm going to compliment the song and yeah. that egomaniac will not be able to avoid turning around and looking at me. Yeah. So she says, Orpheus, by the way, that was the most beautiful song I've ever heard. I think that's your best song. So of course he turns around and goes, really? You know, uh, and then she's gone and she's so happy to be gone. Mm -hmm. Then we have another woman's version, which is, um, She's, oh, by the way, in that poem, she also says, and by the way, all that stuff about the animals, I wrote that PR. <laughs> I thought that was great too. But we also have another poet who talks about having the dead Orpheus in her Cadillac while she drives around uh, underground New York in the 1960s because she's, she's just taken over. It's like, he's the dead one. 
and she's alive and she's navigating the underworld and wow. that is New York City. And then we have Rilke's version where Hermes is trying to help Eurydice to reach the, the world of the living again. And he turns too soon and she's, she doesn't care. She, she sees his face as he turns and she says to Hermes, who is that? Mm -hmm. Very profound. Yeah. And, and then we have also a version where the, the idea is that, that Orpheus um, really didn't, didn't want anything except his fame. And, and so the idea is that he's a hypocrite mm. and his whole, uh, I, I'm singing about love that's everywhere in the world, but he didn't really love. And, and of course, Plato had said that the Hades never sent her, that Hades thought that uh, Orpheus was an impudent mortal for even daring to come down there and try to break the laws of nature. So he just sent a ghost to further shame Orpheus. And Plato agreed with that and called Orpheus a coward I saying, you know, part. listen, everybody loses their loved ones eventually. And, you know, they don't make a big fuss out of them. The whole world stops and the gods have to get involved. And uh, I love those, those views on Orpheus. They're just so uh, fun <laughs> to see that finally it's, it's like breath has been breathed into this myth. And instead of it being this stultifying story of broken love and, and then because of that loss, and that's still the most profound version, I think, because isn't Orpheus an example of taking grief and loss and unleashing it in creativity and creating something wonderful in the world that influences, you know, centuries, mm -hmm. all based on trying to cope with this grief and then that driving one to these discoveries of the wisdom that's hidden all around us. Mm. Yes. I love all of those takes and all of those perspectives so much. And I had never heard that. I, I, I'm aware that Plato was steeped in the Orphic mysteries, but I had never heard his like hot take on Orpheus <laughs> being a coward. And it made me laugh so much because it is a good point when you're looking at the myth through his eyes, I can see what he's saying. Like, if you want to be with Eurydice, then just die. You know, like exactly why are you violating the laws of nature. Yeah, natural law being the foundation of like all antiquated philosophy, and you know, still should be in many ways because there's a really good point to that. And reading that chapter, all of these different threads and all these different layers made me see things in a way that I had never seen before, and I really want to get your opinion on what came through um because plato said that he had like a problem with that the the melodrama of orpheus why didn't you just die and go to the underworld to be mm -hmm. with your wife if you wanted yeah. to be with her so much i mean that's a natural uh method of getting your wife back you know go mm -hmm. go be with her join her um but it was all swirling around and i was thinking about okay so orpheus is He's the grandson of memory, Nemosini, and he's the son of the muse, Calliope, mm -hmm. epic poetry, the one that gave eloquence. And so at this time, and you mentioned this in the book as well, in different places, how Orpheus may be, in fact, like this sort of literary figure. Like you said, perhaps Pythagoras wrote these hymns and perhaps the Orphic current 
which like Christianity has spread this mystery religion to the common people by making it widely available, more accessible, having it be published and disseminated all over the place. And so I was considering just his lineage, like he's the son of the muse who is the daughter of memory herself. And there is at this time, and especially in Plato, in Phaedrus, where he's, you know, he's speaking for Socrates's uh, concerns about the fact that writing everything down is going to cease to uh it's going to it's going to limit people's ability to access their memory mm-hmm. because when you rely on what is written you create artificial external memory rather than that like well of living memory the waters of memory within mm-hmm. so not being able to remember in that traditional nemocini way mm-hmm. that traditional living memory way is a tremendous shift in consciousness or an evolution mm-hmm. And it's a sacrifice for something that obviously human beings thought was really important because without the written word, we wouldn't know who Socrates was. And so that's the great irony of that speech that Socrates is giving his concerns about this written history or this literary world that's being created, which will allow us to remember, to not forget, um, it requires a major sacrifice of a certain quality or an ability that we have, a a level of consciousness that we have, living memory. So I was thinking about the story and I'm like, okay, Orpheus, grandson of memory, he's two generations removed. He represents this leap of consciousness into that externalized artificial memory, which has its benefits because what it can do is allow people to collectively remember it generation after generation it will not descend into the underworld and be forgotten and so I was thinking about his place in the underworld and the response that Hades has which is at first no but then I think Edith Hamilton said his song moved like iron tears to fall down from his face he was so opened and so moved by the the song that he finally agrees but this is the first time it struck me that i don't think i think he agreed but i think it was an impossible task i don't think that it was ever possible for orpheus to actually bring his wife out of the underworld because the underworld represents the place of the past what we forget what's dead and buried and long gone what is forgotten a theme in the Orphic Mysteries as well, that the underworld is a place where things are easily forgotten. Mm -hmm. So there's no way that this young hero is actually capable of remembering what he was told to do in order to get out of there. And she herself, like, is a ghost. I mean, exactly. Like, there is, she is being forgotten, which does tap into that tragedy that we all feel when we lose somebody and we start to fear that we're losing parts of them, like Mm -hmm. we're forgetting things. So there's that element of it. But then the looking back, specifically in the Ovid version, which, mm, excuse me, in the Ovid version, which is very dramatic, it's like at the last moment, you know, it's that like very melodramatic, looks back at the last moment and all is lost. Mm -hmm. Um, That's like, to me, I saw it finally like this is 
the the literary mind, the work of a writer mm -hmm. that is actually stopping his flow. Because mm -hmm. Orpheus represents just the divine flow of inspiration, the extemporaneous flow that is totally attuned to the cosmos in harmony with divine love has just things pouring through him almost like a medium or you know he's inspired by the muse he's the son of the muse mm -hmm. and he is filled with living memory his grandmother mm -hmm. but for this moment he's in the underworld he's in this place of forgetting and he is actually being recorded by Ovid and that looking back to me shows this this moment when he and his destiny did change and he became mm -hmm. rather than an element of living memory a bard of that original essence mm -hmm. of human consciousness he evolved into the literary form of external memory that yeah. demands the erosion of internal memory that demands mm -hmm. the erosion of eurydice right. so his wife to me mm -hmm. represents what she represents to me is the sacrifice that had to be made. And it's tragic yeah. because it's this essence of who we are. And I think that's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. And I think right. uh, there's also Tamara has a version that I think is really wonderful too, which is she sees Orpheus as the soul and Eurydice as the body. Yeah. And the I soul wants to bring the body with it yeah. into the afterlife, but it can't. Yeah. And, and so um, but now let's let's talk about what you just mentioned here a little bit, because one of the interesting things about all this is that Orpheus was um, was at the heart of when books, really scrolls, yeah. became popular in Greece. Yeah. And and so uh, Plato also condemns these itinerant priests who go around looking for recently deceased rich people in order to talk their families into uh, paying them to perform these rites in order to purify the souls of the dead and sure. of the family in the afterlife and to save them from certain suffering if they don't have purity. Yeah. And he thought this was just the lowest of the low. And even Plutarch said, you know, all these stories about these, these horrible hells, that's just lurid and yeah. morbid. And however, we have a complete change in the ideas about the afterlife with Orpheus. So in the Homeric world, in the Olympian world, which is the really the, let's call it the mainstream culture of ancient Greece, we're worshiping warriors. You know, our heroes are people like Odysseus and Achilles. Mm -hmm. And we, we want men to be strong and willing to fight. And the most noble death is death in war. Women in supposedly democratic Athens are locked up and are blamed if they're raped. It's always the woman's fault. Um, men are... Uh, really meat-eating, animal-sacrificing, war-ready, dominant members of society. And they're going to try to make the most of this life because once you get to the other side, unless you're the highest kind of hero who earns the Elysian fields or gets lifted up into the stars, you are going to be nothing but a flitting shadow with no breath and no blood. Mm -hmm. no ability to focus on anything or to communicate. When Odysseus in the Odyssey tries to speak with the dead, he has to sacrifice animals and fill a pit with blood so that the ghost can suck the energy from it and have a voice with which to speak to him. Mm -hmm. And Homer describes 
this after death state with a clear sense of dread. And it's the most pathetic thing to be in the world of the dead and not be able to do anything as you can in this world. So we see this also, by the way, in the ancient Egyptian literature, where there is, uh, for example, a story about a, a girl who complains that now that she's dead, she's so thirsty, which is an Orphic thing too. Mm-hmm. And, and, but she's right next to water, but she can't even get any mm-hmm. because that's, that's the difference between being living and dead. And Orpheus comes along and now we have a completely different thing. Mm-hmm. First of all, I say, and so does Tamara, that this is the first counterculture possibly in in Western history. And number one, no more animal sacrifice. Because now we're teaching reincarnation. In fact, you shouldn't even eat them. You should be a vegetarian because if you're eating an animal, you might be eating the soul or the vehicle of a soul that was once very dear to you. And what a radical idea for ancient Greece. War, no war killing other human beings that's no good like why would why would gods want sacrificial animals and wars gods don't want blood gods want harmony songs good deeds flowers milk honey that's how you you show your gratefulness to the gods not through killing Mm -hmm. really radical ideas and terrible for that culture i mean you know that's why aristophanes is making fun of young Greek men who are growing up with these ideas and who refuse to fight. And so, but now, and and by the way, it's not just that. It's that now, if you're an initiate of the Orphic Mysteries, you don't forget. You don't go into that Homeric underworld. You get to be at a banquet with the gods or you actually become a star in the heavens helping uh, the solar spirit of Apollo to rule life on, on in the world and to, to bring order and light and, and justice and beauty and harmony everywhere. And I love this image about the Orphic hymns that we start out as a spark of Dionysus, just a, a little spark of Dionysus and then a whole bunch of the Titans, right? Because the Titans attacked Zagreus, which was the name of Dionysus in this form when he was a baby. And Zeus put him on his own throne. Like this, this is my kid, you know, putting him on the throne. He was preparing him to be the next God of the next millennium to take over the way Zeus did from Kronos. And along comes, um, the Titans who hate Zeus and hate the gods and they're jealous and they use these toys, which are described as balls or a tuft of cotton, but they're symbols for the planets and for the body. And, um, and they draw Dionysus down where Zeus can't see him and they kill him, tear him up, and then they cook him and eat him. Mm. And Zeus catches them in this and he throws lightning, destroying everything. And from that, paste of combined spark of Dionysus and the hateful Titan's flesh is the birth of humanity. And so we start out as this lost spark or tear of Dionysus. But then when we reawaken, when when we're saved, we become a star, a literal star, which has a consciousness that uh, shares with Apollo knowledge of everything in the universe. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. So what does this do in society, right? Now, 
I'm walking along and I'm I'm an Orphic. I'm somebody who doesn't like war and I don't eat meat. Well, I'm a laughing stock, right? I mean, all the big strong Greek men must be going, you know, oh, look at this ridiculous character, right? Won't fight, won't won't you know get out there and debate politics, and you know all he wants to do is 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 practice death. And there's a famous story about um, a Spartan being approached by by an Orphic uh, wandering priest who tells him, um, oh, I can teach you the way to go to the afterlife because the world of the dead is so much better. The Spartans were famous for witty comebacks and the Spartan supposedly said, well, what are you waiting for? Because these priests were these miserable, poor people. Um, he thought, well, if that's so great, why don't you just <laughs> go right now <laughs> instead of wasting my time? So the feeling suddenly is well guess what mr strong greek guy you don't know anything you're going to go down there and be a flitty little ghost in the homeric underworld i'm going to be among the gods when i die because i know the mysteries that is so counterculture right that's so you know it reminds me of sunset boulevard down here for in the you know 60s 70s 80s 90s 50s where you find all these musicians walking around in these outlandish outfits of the decade and they felt so superior to everybody who was trying to have a job and live a normal life and be responsible because they were these priests of Dionysus, whether they knew it or not, they were bringing wine, women, and song to the world. And that made them special. Mm -hmm. And in the case of the Orphic underground, it's even more pronounced because you're, you have this sense of, I know I have the keys to how life works and you who look down on me because I don't participate in things that you consider important. You're actually the fools, not me. That's a, that's a shift that reappears over and over again in the Rosicrucian manifestos, for instance, where Orpheus does make an appearance and um, in, in counterculture in general, there is that sense of, of, yeah, you can laugh at me because I'm not much in this world, but I know what's really going on. And in the future world, I'm going to be way better off than anybody else. <laughs> so that changed the whole idea of what could happen to you after death. I mean, you suddenly went from, no, there's really nothing you can do. I mean, you're just going to be the shadow to if you say the right thing, if you know the formula, if you have the golden leaf, the totem pass, right, the death passport, mm -hmm. if you know the, the, the right password you were going to experience cosmic consciousness forever. You're going to remember yourself. You're going to know that you are a little bit of Dionysus. And so Zeus is your father. Mm -hmm. Every single human soul mm -hmm. is a little bit of Dionysus. Every single human soul is a relative to Zeus. Mm -hmm. And so instead of, of seeing ourselves as kind of these, these, uh, broken inferior creatures of the more early Homeric kind of uh, look at it. And you have heroes, right? Look at the change in, in heroes that Orpheus creates from the wrath of Achilles, the cleverness of Odysseus in war to a musician who sings these incredible songs that are filled with the wisdom of the universe. He's a hero. Yeah. That's a whole different thing. Now, there were others, Pherakides, Pythagoras himself, the early figures in Greek mythology uh, who were these, these kind of combination, combinations of shaman and philosopher and magician. 
and who were influential on, in, on the birth of Pythagoreanism and, and the Orphic stuff. It's not that Orpheus was the first, but by far the most popular, by far the most influential, and a myth that kept this dynamic reawakening in generation after generation. Because yeah. as, as we list in the book, the number of poets and composers and it's ridiculous. I mean, just to give you an example, um, when I was touring with uh, Lucination, I became friendly somehow with, um, oh, I know, uh, I know how, but I won't, I won't bother your listeners with it, um, with Patricia Keneally Morrison, who was Jim Morrison's uh, pagan bride and was an author in her own right and a music journalist. And I talked to her about Jim Morrison and about his interest in Dionysus. And I asked, did, did they know anything about Orpheus? And, and she said, yes, you know, definitely. And that he was very deeply into Dionysus. And, um, and so there's that influence again, right? All the way to, to the 1960s with a rock star like, like Jim Morrison. And then you've got Neil Gaiman who recently uh, did a version of Eurydice where he conflates her with Persephone. And so it just keeps appealing to uh, what I would call um, underground affiliated, even if they're very successful uh, artists and creative people and, and philosophically inclined people. Mm -hmm. It's very potent, but that's, that's something separate from the, you know, the thing about the hymns that's so fascinating is um, what is it that makes them so, so powerful and why do they have this ability to, uh, to attract serendipity? And so people have said, one thing that I run into in, in doing interviews about this is, for instance, if you speak to somebody who's got a Christian background and it's still very influential to them, they're like, well, who are you talking to though? Like when you do these hymns and you get this magic, how do you know it's not demonic? How do you know that, that, that a demon isn't pretending to be this God? I mean, yeah. just because Pico della Mirandola said that's not the case, that doesn't mean that it isn't, right? Or you get a cultist who will say, well, these are very dangerous egregores. They're, they're collective thoughts that were created in the past who are looking for devotees so that they can grow and become more powerful. And so they use their, these powers to influence the material world in order to convince us to serve them so they can become more powerful, and and so and on and on, right? People trying to 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 look at it in a way that 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 sows fear. And we could look at this, you know, individual. Like we could discuss egregores, and you know, does it really satisfy Occam's razor? Uh, you know, is that really what we're dealing with when we're dealing with with a an organization that has a soul of its own and a will of its own that doesn't care about the the people that are serving it? Um, we can talk about the, the idea of demons and, and that they're based on the daemon, which is a, actually just a word for spirit and in the ancient Greek. And, um, but what I usually say about this is all words are treacherous. Like you were saying about books, they're signifiers. Mm -hmm. And every signifier has with it a small set of, related images or ideas that we think of as what that word means. It can be different for different people. When you say Dionysus to somebody, 
very different things can come up. A crazy God that caused bloodshed everywhere. And, you know, people were killing their own kids and as in uh, the Bacchae by Euripides, or, or he can be the best party God ever, you know, like, like they should have gotten together Dionysus and Sekhmet, you know, now that's a party. And, um, or was he, you know, this brilliant uh, antidote to the Olympian gods with their relentless masculinity and, and warfare and, and competition. Mm-hmm. And, but uh, for us, the important thing is to realize that the words are not what they're pointing at. So we can only judge by what the impact is on us and in the world of, of these beings, of these, let's say alleged beings. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I think you have, have a hard time finding as much positive impact as the Orphic hymns have had. Um, yeah. They don't have a bloody history the way the Bible does and even Buddhism does. Um, they, they have inspired an unbelievable amount of art and music and wonderful philosophy and mysticism. And, and the people that they've inspired most, such as Ficino are some, and Taylor are some of the most wonderful people that, that we can read about in history, in our own lives, as you've described, and as we've experienced in our life, the, our life together, we, we have good things happening as a result of contact with them. Not just good for us, but good for the people around us and good for others. And so whatever it is, and, and why reduce it to one of these words that after all are pretty much all pointing at this mysterious thing, some with more fear and some with more faith. Why don't we just let what they are be revealed? If we feel drawn to it and we feel secure about the history of it, why don't we immerse ourselves a little bit more deeply into it and, and see what that communication feels like? And and we have to test it throughout life. We have to see, you know, does this satisfy moments of when we're facing terrible, you know, grief and fear? And can we turn to these gods and can we get uh, mercy or can we get, uh, you know, wisdom? Can we get uh, a way to find harmony in what appears to be nothing but disharmony? And each of us has to experience that for ourselves and make up our own minds. Mm-hmm. So, I think that that um, very astute point about books and about the change in memory and and the anxiety that was felt among the Greeks around that idea that Socrates is made to express so well by Plato, as you mentioned, that that you know what happens when we no longer have that oral tradition and it's been written down. And I just wanted to add that one of the dangers is the problem with words, right? That when when it's an oral thing and you're speaking to the person and you can ask clarifying questions and such, um, there's more of a sense that we're, we're trying to communicate something ineffable to each other and it's not going to come out completely clearly. We're going to need to make definitions and some of it will be really impossible to define and will have to be experienced. But when you get a book in your hand, and there's nobody to tell you that stuff. And you have a certain point of view, a certain word maybe triggers you and you decide, well, wait a minute, 
uh, what are these creatures? What's going on here? I mean, how can I turn to these these gods that are not from my own, uh, let's say, uh, genetic line, right? Some people are very concerned about that, but mm -hmm. the gods choose whom they will. And and I've been lucky to to know a lot of people who've worked with the Greek gods, a lot of people who've worked with Egyptian gods, ordained Egyptian priests, and they are wonderful people. And they certainly exemplify that something very good is going on there, that that there is harmony being brought to life. There's hope and love being brought to life. And as long as that's happening, what more can you ask for? Agreed. I mean, 100% agreed. And I'm, I'm really glad that you really... Uh, that you support and also consider it necessary to have your own sort of personal personal gnosis with this kind of work. Mm -hmm. um, I myself was raised Christian. I went to a Lutheran school when I was growing up. Very grateful for it. I'm not complaining. The Lutherans were actually wonderful people. Um, mm -hmm. They treated me very well. Mm -hmm. And to this day, I have tremendous love for Jesus Christ. And mm -hmm. I have I really love the Gospel of John. So the way that I saw history unfolding with this Orphic current is that it, it obviously was the predecessor to many of the Christian ideas that are really yeah. the deep ones, like all lives can be saved in the afterlife, that you are important, that you are God's child, that you are eternal. All of those things being disseminated to the common people. That's to me, what's really beautiful about Christianity. Mm -hmm. Also the message of peace and being willing to go against the grain of status quo society. But the gospel of John is, you know, in the beginning was the word. And that is the identification of Jesus Christ as the logos itself, mm -hmm. which is very much what Orpheus represents to me. Mm -hmm. And so even though I, I'm definitely a free thinker and I've gone my own way and I've explored many things, it um this stuff has never represented to me a rebellion or going against the grain of the deep wisdom that I found in Christianity that I still mm -hmm. carry. And all I can say is that I, you know, the term in Christianity is the Holy Spirit. So mm -hmm. if you know it, then you know it. It's a vibration, it's a subtle knowing, it's a feeling. And when you recognize it, it's absolutely real it's familiar it's real and it's not the same thing as being deceived by spirits that are duplicitous or parasitic or getting wrapped up in your own ego or trying to get things that aren't necessarily for you like mm -hmm. all of that i actually recognize the issues with mm -hmm. whether you're coming from a a Christian perspective of fear about demons or not. There are like a lot of tangled up things in magic, but the Orphic hymns to me have always represented, essentially, if I were trying to tell uh, somebody who's very much close to Christianity still or steeped in that tradition, and that's their paradigm without any other, I would say it taps into the Holy Spirit. That's what it is. And what I think you and Tamara said in the book is that it actually, these hymns, though they are pagan in the way that there are multitudes of expressions of the divine, mm -hmm. it also produces, in your words, uh, an experience of monotheism. Or in another way of looking at it, you tap into this unifying field, the unified field, which is, to me, like what the Holy Spirit represents, just mm -hmm. that 
essence of spirit that is within everything. And so to use the the multiplicity of our imagination to understand its many tones and colors and faces and qualities to me is absolutely 100% in alignment with the real message of Christ. Now it's obviously, that's not how a lot of people feel. Um, But I don't think of it as worshiping other gods Mm -hmm. in that really rigid way. Like Mm -hmm. it's something that is um, it's, it's more, fluid than that and unity there, there is a way of seeing the hymns as um as the effort possibly by somebody named onomacritus and yeah. who lived during the time of the tyrants in athens who was said to have gathered together the books of homer but is also sometimes said to have gathered together the orphic hymns and he actually was um, accused in court in Athens of blasphemy because of making changes in them. Yeah. But the the idea seems to be that, um, to me at least, that these gods are the the, the individual ways that their names, how they appear, their stories, that the objects and beings that are associated with them and such colors and and times of day and all the rest. Um, that these represent, in a sense, you would call them accidents of time and place. So in a certain part of Greece, Pan was worshipped. In another part, Artemis was worshipped. Mm-hmm. In, in ancient Egypt, for example, there was Bubastis, the city of cats, and Memphis, the city of Sekhmet, and other cities with, with cat and lion gods, all in the Delta. But each was a very different cult. And although they resembled each other, they were seeing, I think, the same thing in a different way. Mm-hmm. So to me, and this is something that Manly Hall also often was talking about, you can look past these accidents of time and place and understand that we're really talking about one divinity, one divinity seen through the eyes of so many different times and places. And for some, this looks like a woman and she's great in magic, Hecate of the crossroads. And she's leading Demeter on the search for her daughter, holding the torch. And for others, it's a male God. It's, it's mighty Zeus and these philandering. That's how all kinds of heroes are born. And, but these aren't separate entities necessarily. It's all a different way of seeing the same thing mm-hmm. of, of having the same um, progress from here's a good image of it. You know, Christianity was so influenced influenced by Orphism. By the way, um, I mean the Church Fathers thought that there was a lot of good in Orphism, and they said you could take the good stuff and 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 leave out the rest. There's even a Franciscan monk who left an anonymous uh, note saying Orpheus is Jesus. Jesus is Orpheus. Mm-hmm. And so the, the way that, that, that Christianity um, and religion in general tend to, to divide themselves from everything else as, you know, well, that's wrong. And we've had cultures not like that, like Rome, which had a tendency to say, great, you know, let's, that's God's good too. And, you know, that God reminds us a lot of our God so-and-so, I guess they're the same one. Um, but 
there have also been so many cultures where there have been wars fought and and even civil wars about differences of opinion about what how to worship a god or what or what the god looks like or should you be able to look at a god at all right there should not be idols or um, there should only be, you know, letters of four letters of a name that no one quite knows. And, and the Jewish tradition, for example, these are all valuable and wonderful ways to view divinity. And to me, and this is what Manley Hall taught, the more you know, the better, the more you know about all the gods, the better, the more you know about all the religious practices, the better, because ultimately what's happening is you're being taken from um, I love this image. There was a German scholar, Eisler, who was probably very wrong about this, but he argued that the Christian cross actually came from an Orphic wheel, which mm. looked like a cross, and it was supposedly used in the Orphic mysteries. You were tied to it, and then you were spun, mm. and and then you were released, and you would you would come off that wheel staggering to stand up, and the priest would say to you, that is what your soul feels like as you fall through the universe from incarnation to incarnation in your ignorance of what you really are. Mm -hmm. Well, that's where we all start when we get down here. Now we're trying to get back to the consciousness of that star that we really are, where we now have a consciousness that is unobstructed and can share with nature this kind of, you know, Apollo's view of everything. And whatever religion it is, that's where we're going. If it's Christian, we want to become part of the heavenly choir and, and be there in, in the music of God. That's also an image of knowing the whole world and the harmony of the world and seeing the truth and love that is everywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. And if you're a Buddhist, you want to go from being lost in, in ignorance and reincarnation, and then you finally reach enlightenment. And now you are a radiant Buddha. And you are saving others and, and awakening them. And as it says in the Flower Adornment Sutra, um, you know, everyone's going, all sentient beings wake up to the fact that they are Buddha, that they are, they're all Buddhas. And so everything that exists and is sentient in this world is a potential Buddha and will be a Buddha because that's what everything is. So all the religions are kind of using these different metaphors to take us from uh, an ignorant consciousness where we are, I mean, now, you know, really, this is a good time to be talking about it because most people are, are really kind of uh, obsessed with the feed. Uh, all so many things happening, you know, we've got economic crises and two wars and we've got, you know, COVID still out there and there's flus and there's all this crazy stuff that's making people glue themselves to the news to find out what's going to happen next. And we worry about our bills and our jobs and our kids and our relationships and, and our desires. And, you know, the, the room isn't the color that I wanted it to be and all these things that keep us in ignorance. And then life comes along and there's a, there's a loss. There's something that happens and we suddenly realize we're woken up to, to the fact that we've been sleepwalking in a sense. And then we begin this journey, which Orpheus is trying to take us on and which this, these hymns are trying to take us on to restore this kind of 360 degree view of the world and to see the wisdom and the mercy in it and the grace. And, and then when we finally achieve that, we're in this world looking at life in a very different way. So 
Um, I often talk about the secret of the golden flower, which is a Taoist alchemical text. And, yeah. and one of the ideas in it is that the lower soul, which is, it's, there is no lower soul and higher soul, it's one soul, but the lower part of the soul, which is in the body and is running this universe of millions of, of things that have to all operate together in harmony for us to experience health and to be able to sustain ourselves through time. Well, the idea in, in the secret of the golden flower is that when we forget the higher part of the soul that's in touch with our true unobstructed selves, what happens is the soul that's in our bodies running everything and dealing with the particulars of life gets overwhelmed and hates life mm -hmm. and often becomes obsessed with death, with killing and with, with murder stories and games where you kill people and and it wants to die because it wants to get away from the body and be free again. Because in the body, when you don't know what you really are, you're experiencing the fear that, that you're going to be annihilated, that like your body, you will no longer exist. And mm -hmm. you feel very frail in the face of the world, which seems to be this permanent thing that's so strong out there, when really it's constantly changing and things are disappearing every day. And... And so we have to kind of wake up to, to this part of ourselves that's still part of us, the higher soul, the, the immortal self that's here doing all this. And when we do, we no longer hate life. We love life because now we realize, wow, look at this. I'm not even sure what this is, except it's a great place to learn. It's a great artistic thing. It's, um, it's play, maybe it's punishment. Not exactly sure why I'm here, but I know it's miraculous. I know that the birds and the flowers and, and friends and love and, you know, my favorite cat or dog or whatever, you know, there's so much in this world to love and to be wowed by. And when you see yourself as somebody who has um, a, a consciousness that's outside of time, that's experiencing time in order to learn things and to evolve, to become more aware of what we really are so that we can take a greater part in all of this, that when we do that, we, we kind of um, cherish everything, even the, the, the losses. And, and we, we have a completely different perspective because now we're, we're here um, experimenting in a laboratory or in the greatest artistic community that was ever thought of and the, you know this co-creation that is the world and we can go around it with a sense of wonder and mm -hmm. so to me that's what all religions are talking about is taking it from that sense of of oh my god what is going on how do i protect myself how do i protect those i love and what a terrible world is this so full of terrible things my god and, and then taking it to, wow, look at this. I mean, for every terrible thing, there's something beautiful. For every terrible loss, there's something wonderful that happens and that, that seems to bring about a dawn. And so to me, the Orphic hymns are a really profound ladder for achieving that. And of course, they were strong influence on Plato and on Neoplatonism. And, and there we have in theurgy and in, in that 
that practice of trying to divinize ourselves to to get the attention of the gods because only the gods can can save us um to give us the grace to wake up mm -hmm. and realize that we are all children of zeus we are all sparks of dionysus mm -hmm. and that way the fear comes out of it and I've never contacted, I've never seen any religion. I've, there's certainly been some weird practices and scary stuff that's gone on in human history. But so much of it, I think, has been propaganda. Because when you dig into it, like, for instance, you know, um, in this book, we write about uh, a, a period in Rome where um, there was uh, an emperor by the name of Elagabalus, who was a high priest of Baal. And he wasn't a very popular emperor at all, but a very interesting emperor. Um, but Baal is somebody that we grow up with in Christian culture and Judeo-Christian culture thinking it was the worst. You know, Baal's this big fiery idol and they throw babies in it. And mm -hmm. I mean, but Baal was called the Lord of Wisdom. And no, they weren't. I mean, I'm sure there were places where that kind of stuff was going on, but in general, it's propaganda in history. People are saying about somebody else, they kill babies, they, they sacrifice. That was said of Christians. For sure. Absolutely. The, and I know Caesar was saying that about the Druids and, you know, it's, it's a common trope throughout history and mm -hmm. maybe it's deliberate deception. Maybe it's projection. I think it's mm -hmm. both depending yeah. on the circumstance. Um, well, it's useful that, propaganda, you know, it's yeah. always good to demonize the, the people you're trying to dominate. Yes. And, and then there's like the added hysteria of projection that fuels mm -hmm. that fire. And mm -hmm. there you go. Look at what's happening. Right. I don't want to go into it, but look at the middle East right now. I mean, oh, the complexity God. of the trauma that is playing out there, uh, is it's, it's both terrifying and tragic and, and people who should be uh, helping each other and be allies who are who are actually have experienced over the centuries similar kinds of of torment uh, wind yeah. up being vicious enemies and traumatizing the whole world uh, yeah. in working out their problems. And then uh, to me, that's that's a good example of how that's when we get lost in in this material dimension and we begin to lose sight of of what's real and what isn't and we can't have empathy we we must demonize people to make ourselves feel better about dominating them and and it, it's it's tragic it's it's so frustrating and you know just as somebody who's kind of i naturally am oriented towards this sort of orphic current i became a vegetarian on my own when i was four years old my parents are not vegetarians i'm an only child so I have never eaten meat since I was four. I'm super attracted to the teachings of Jesus because he was a peacemaker mm -hmm. and also a heretic. I mean, I like yeah. that too. Um, but the the comments you were making way earlier about how, you know, to be somebody who is not going to be seduced by war makes you really abject and, and unwanted. And I certainly have experienced that throughout my entire life because no matter what, I will not support the mass murder of anybody. Mm -hmm. And that does not mean that I'm taking a side. And it doesn't mean that I'm just bowing out. Like I don't care. I care a lot. And I, but I won't, I won't take a side in this war. Like I just won't do it. It's too painful and it's wrong because I genuinely care about 
human life on both sides. I can't dehumanize one side or the yeah. other. And that doesn't mean that atrocities are not that haven't been committed and that there should not be justice. Mm -hmm. I believe in justice, but not mass murder. And it hurts really bad because it's just something that repeats over and over and over and yeah. over. And that is why I love these uh, these funereal texts, the Egyptian Book of the Dead, certainly the Tibetan Book of the Dead and obviously the Orphic Mysteries, because I have always found them to be the best manuals on how to live. Um, meditating on the afterlife is important, but also, you know, to me at a certain point, it's like you can get really lost in like imagining reincarnations and you can get really lost in this imagination of heaven. And I do it, but I actually have found like the Tibetan book of the dead is about how you can overcome getting trapped in those cycles of abuse and trauma over and over mm -hmm. and over not necessarily just a new life but how about the way we just cycle through these patterns over and over we break up with the abusive boyfriend get a new boyfriend guess what he's even worse and it's because we have not healed something and we are stuck on this wheel of karma and then there's the egyptian book of the dead same thing great manual for how to live lightening your heart and not allowing yourself to be corrupted by bitterness hatred and that heaviness and then finally you know the orphic tradition which obviously i knew about orpheus from myth but i didn't really get into the orphic hymns until uh, the the Getty Villa reopened in mm -hmm. 2006. So I used to go there as a child and I love that place. It's one of the reasons I was so connected to ancient Greek and Roman culture mm -hmm. because I got to see it at this amazing museum. And then when it reopened, finally, uh, I saw the actual golden tablet, the Orphic tablet that they have there. Yeah. And, you know, they translate it beautifully. So I actually got to see it, which is so powerful because again this idea that we are creating this external memory for the ages so there i am in 2006 and i see this golden tablet and i read it and i suddenly realize oh my god there's so much more to orpheus and i've heard of the orphic mysteries but it was very vague i really didn't quite understand what it was very vague very general once i read that prescription that as you i think you said it was a the password of memory how to navigate your afterlife and the final proclamation which i have used ever since in meditations and as like a foundational sort of mantra for my life which is you know you tell hades or you tell whoever's guarding the waters of memory that i am a child or the child of earth and starry heaven and my races of heaven. It gave me chills when I read that. I was like, that is so dope. It's beautiful. It says it all. And it's just so affirming. And it's so resonant with what I had been taught in Christianity, of course, like you're a child of God. But to me, the poetry of this was just sparkling. And so that's why I sought out the Orphic hymns, because I wanted to know more. Like, what did these people believe? What was this? Were these was this a very secret mystery cult? Were these elites? Who were these people? And that is the way that we should live because we are often thirsty and lost and tempted to give in to the oblivion of, oh, I'll just support this war because it's easier that way. Or I'll just believe what I was told by the news because it's easier that way. Or I'm not gonna 
I'm not going to ask any questions about this new boyfriend because I'm just going to pretend that this is a, a new vibe, even though I've done no internal work to heal. Um, we do it all the time. But then when you remember who you really are, and that's why I love that one phrase. It's so easy to remember. And it's so beautiful. I am a child of earth and starry heaven. And that unlocks it all for you. So immediately you have value, you have dignity, you are divine and also of earth. So it's not untethered to the necessity and importance of our earthly existence, the density here. Like you said, maybe it is a bit punishing and we do suffer a lot here. Um, it recognizes that base note that we're experiencing, but also reminds you always, always, always there's the wholeness of your being and you are descended from both the celestial and the terrestrial. And to me, that just really like it unlocked the whole hermetic philosophy, the whole perspective that I was trying to get at in my studies at the time. And so I've used that ever since. And I really appreciated that you translated uh, basically the same story, the basically the same text. You called it the Orphic Charms mm -hmm. um, the to the left of hate to the left of Hades. Was that what it was called? To the left of the door of Hades. I think that's what it was called in your book. But yeah, that's basically the same story that is detailed on that tablet at the Getty Villa. So if anyone lives in LA, you can go see it and you can actually read what it says in translation, yeah. but it's in your book. And to me, that is the most helpful. That's been the most helpful teaching. Yeah, I love it too. It's, um. well, let's let's talk for a moment about the whole way that that, that myth allows us to view humanity in a different light. So, yeah. so it, we're part Titan and we're part Dionysus the savior. Yeah. And and so the Titans, what do we recognize about that? They're envious. They're hateful. Even when they try to do something good, they're destructive. They do not understand the harmony of creation. They're mm -hmm. kind of brute ignorant force that is only interested in its own goals. And its own goals aren't even good for it. Mm -hmm. That whole description is that's our shadow. Yeah. And that's what everybody's struggling with. If you're on social media and you're looking at stuff and going, oh, well, look at that. Well, I'm glad they're so happy. Or you're you're reading about the war and you're having an opinion about, oh, that's just whichever side. They're the most vile people ever any, anywhere. They're just animals or whatever illusion has fallen into or we're, we're hating on creation. We're hating our fellow humans. Nature is, is just here for us to exploit and it's filled with death and suffering and horror. And we lose sight of the beauty that surrounds us all the time. Just the simplest beauties, birds, flowers, uh, the people that we love. And but Dionysus the savior is the ability to function in this world of suffering in the same way that is described in the Kabbalah, which is, our job is to help make the world more perfect. Mm -hmm. The gods, when we serve them, are inspiring us so that we can make the world a more wonderful creation. We can find in it their wisdom, their love, and, and remind ourselves and others of it and act accordingly. That is such a radically different idea of life and experience of life. And it is similar again, to the secret of the golden flower, right? Because when you're in the lower soul, you're like a Titan. You, you 
you're angry and you want out you want you like death because death is reassuring and but then when you're in the higher soul you want to preserve everything you want to cherish it you you want everybody to see that that gorgeous little hummingbird that you just saw or you see signs of grace everywhere mm-hmm. and and that is I found that too, to be a very useful way of looking at life, to be able to sit there and not to literally think, well, you know, I'm a Titan, but to, to, to feel that kind of the Greeks call it thumos, right? Like this kind of righteous indignation, uh, well up in you and to be able to recognize it and go, "Mm, that's, that's not legit. Mm -hmm. Like, like the Titan wants to look at the conflict in the middle East and say, you know, that side is wrong and they must all be punished. And, and this side is doing that and that's wrong. And, or you can look at it and say, we've got to stop traumatizing generations, people. Mm-hmm. And we need to sit down and figure out how Palestinians and Israelis can live and have decent lives and have children can have good lives instead of being traumatized in, in the most horrific and barbaric ways in the name of some sort of justice. Right. And, that is, is, that's a challenge that we all face every day mm-hmm. at work, in our families, everywhere. Can we stop demonizing and, and reacting in fear and anger and bitterness? And can we instead be an example in our own lives and in the choices that we make of the divine harmony? Mm-hmm. Very well said. Oh my God. Thank you so much for your time ronnie this has been an amazing conversation and also thank you to you and tamara for writing this book because it it represents so many years of your experience and also honestly your love for this this philosophy this current this consciousness um and this history and that's why I just really, really appreciated the book because it's something I've really kind of been waiting for. It's a Goldilocks thing. Not that there isn't great stuff written on yeah. Orpheus and Orphic hymns. There most definitely is. But this was just right. It's that perfect blend of the practical and the magical the artistic and the historical. It's got a huge annotated bibliography for those that are interested. This is definitely a scholarly, well-researched, amazing book that you could use for any kind of research, but it's also kind of folksy. And I don't mean to make that sound diminutive, but it's like, it's very accessible. It's, It's good storytelling. And it's also something that you can use so it's not just armchair stuff it's not something that's just an echo from the ancient world that we read about but have no ability to touch or feel or experience for ourselves this is something you can dive into so thank you so much to both of you for your work and for this book in particular thank you so much yeah (laughs) oh my goodness well um any final thoughts before we say farewell I just want to encourage um, your listeners to check out the hymns in any form, any translation. And um, there's something about them that that perhaps you'll colla- uh, corroborate, which is um, it seems that that whatever translation you use, whenever you read one and you finish it, there's this like moment of silence. Mm. And and I hope that ours really bring that out because we paid a lot of attention to that. We we really wanted each one to give you that, that when you finished it, 
the the imagery and the ideas that would wash over you would leave you wanting to be quiet for a moment and just sense that feeling of that harmony. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that the hymns do that, not just ours, but the hymns in general do that beautifully. And I also usually recommend if you like them, get all the translations. There's only like four of them right now. There's the official academic one and there's a magical one. And then there's one that's more witchy and they're all great. And, and, and then when you do that, when you put them side by side, then you can make up your own, right. And, and kind of, kind of find what, how they're all pointing at something in different ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 100% agree with that. And uh, the Thomas Taylors are free online, everyone. So yeah. you can sacredtexts.com and get them all for free um yeah so i hope you have a super beautiful day i'm currently working with the hymn to justice that's and i'm using your translation because well it's still libra season and because the world is in chaos so i think that's important and uh so i'm going to be doing that and because of you guys uh something beautiful will occur and i'll send a story if something's something happens that's synchronous please do yeah, yeah please sure. do all right well tell Tamara I said hello and have a beautiful day I'll talk to you guys later someday I hope yeah definitely all right take Bye-bye. care bye Ronnie